morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here at First Baptist, we've been going through the book of 2 Samuel. And this morning, we come to what I'm going to guess is the most famous, uh, best-known narrative in the book. And that is the story of David and Bathsheba. It is a serious account. It's a sobering account. It's a tragic account. Uh, one to which each and every person in this room would do very well to pay close attention. And so let's just start by asking God to help us in this hour uh, that he would use this word, uh, this passage, uh, this sermon even, uh, to truly change our hearts. Father, we are a needy people. Uh, We are in need of your grace at all times. But we especially feel it now as we come to your word because for us to understand your word, for us to believe your word, for us to apply your word, uh, those are things that the Holy Spirit must work in our hearts. And so we pray for exactly that this morning, that you would use this text to convict us and to change us and to cause us to love you more. We pray that we would not allow our familiarity with the passage to harden our hearts in any way. For we know that in any passage of your word, you always have more to teach us. And so please teach us now, we pray. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of that king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, 
and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I was thinking about it this past week. It's the hypothetical thought exercise here. Suppose that a lesser-known king of the Bible, like a, a Jotham or an Amaziah, someone like that, suppose that one of those guys had done the exact same things that David does here. Adultery, cover-up schemes, murder plots, like all of that. If they did... Well, it would be noteworthy. It might have gotten mentioned in their bio in 2 Kings, but I doubt it gets even more than just a few lines of Scripture. But when David does it, if you include the confrontation of the sin in chapter 12, this gets two full chapters. Why? Well, I think the reason this story gets so much ink the reason this narrative gets two entire chapters, the reason why this story is so well known to us is because the old adage is true. The higher they rise, the harder they fall. Like it's because David is so high. He rose so high, much higher than Jotham or Amaziah or any other king that came before or after him. It's because of that that his fall here is so dramatic. It's because of that that his fall here is so stunning and shocking and significant that it literally takes two chapters for the Bible to describe it. 
And so before we get to the details of our story, we would do well to remind ourselves of the context, like the heights that David reached that made this such a dramatic fall, particularly in the four chapters that directly precede ours. Second Samuel chapter 7 David has established his throne. He's secured his throne. He's united the 12 tribes under his monarchy. Uh, He's captured Jerusalem. He's brought the ark in. That's when the Lord makes this great promise, this covenant with David. The Lord will make you a sure house. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. These are mind-blowingly awesome promises Promises that cause David to humbly ask, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Then 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's an overview of David's reign. Militarily, you'll remember, west, east, north, south. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. But the success and glory of his kingdom isn't just with regards to foreign enemies. It's also with his own people. You remember 2 Samuel 8, 15. David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. David reflects God's own attributes of justice and equity. Righteousness and justice. And how he rules over his kingdom. Then 2 Samuel chapter 9. David and Mephibosheth. David extends that chesed, right? The the steadfast love to undeserving Mephibosheth for the sake of his father, Jonathan. He even gives him a seat at the king's table. Treated it as one of the king's own sons. It's perhaps one of the clearest examples we have from David's life of him reflecting the character of his God. Like his actions there are just a striking picture of the steadfast love of God to undeserving sinners like us. And then 2 Samuel chapter 10. Yet another chapter that begins with David extending chesed, steadfast love, this time to Hanan, king of the Ammonites. And even when the chesed displaying king is rejected, Hanan rejects David, leads to a war with the Ammonites. But again, we see that God is with David. The Israelites are once again victorious. And so you think about those four chapters that directly precede 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is pretty much David at his peak. It's promise after promise. It's victory after victory. It's success after success. He's got this united kingdom. His throne is secure. His borders are safe. His approval rating is like 99.8%. It's through the roof. Everybody loves him. And to add to all that, consider his close walk with the Lord. Right? As David reflects the attributes and the character of his God. Listen to how Psalm 89.14 describes God and his reign. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. 2 Samuel chapter 7 through 10, they show us that that's true, at least to a degree, of David and his reign also. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of David's throne. And steadfast love and faithfulness go before David. Like it's hard to imagine how any king could go higher. So if the book of 2 Samuel ended in 2 Samuel chapter 10, I don't know, suppose, suppose David dies right there. Sure, he's got some issues here and there. But overall, he would go down in the annals of biblical history with pretty much a spotless record. But the only problem is that, well, the book of 2 Samuel doesn't end in chapter 10. Because the very next chapter is chapter 11. And that's when the king who reached all of those great heights suffers a massive, dramatic fall. The ripple effects of which are going to be felt for the rest of the book, for the rest of David's life. Listen to how David's life is summarized in 1 Kings 15. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Comma, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And that brings us now to our chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time, of, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. In chapter 10, you'll remember the Ammonites, they retreat into the walled city of Rabbah. We noted that in verse 14, Joab goes back to Jerusalem. He's still got some unfinished business in Rabbah. Well, here it is. Right now is the time for Joab to go back to Rabbah, the city of the Ammonites, and to try to take the city again. It's the spring of the year now. The weather's warmer. Roads are passable. Food is available. And so now an extended siege on the walled city is possible. And so David sends Joab and his men out to finish what they started back in chapter 10, right, to take the Ammonite city of Rabbah. Now, should David have been out there fighting with his army? Is the big problem with this story that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and that's what leads to all of the sin in the chapter? Well, remember just one chapter ago, chapter 10, David doesn't initially go out to that battle either. He only comes in at the very end to finish things off. That's basically what they're doing here also. David's not going to go out in the beginning. He's only going to come in at the end. If you want to look ahead to the end of chapter 12, right? that's when David is going to get involved in this battle. And so yes, it's true that David is able to commit adultery because he remained in Jerusalem. But he's remained in Jerusalem before. And things were fine then. The decision to stay back is certainly a contributing factor, but it hardly makes the rest of the chapter inevitable. Right? It's much, much more complicated than that. But it's as David remained in Jerusalem that he finds himself walking on his roof one day 
looking down from the heights of the palace at the city that he himself established. And that's when he sees a woman, Bathsheba. And we're told in verse 3 that she is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now let's not just skip over that as a typical kind of genealogical introduction. No, it carries a lot more narrative weight than that. Because Eliam, she's the daughter of Eliam. Eliam, we're told later, Eliam the son of Ahithophel, he's one of the 30. He's one of David's mighty men. And Ahithophel, so that's her grandfather, we're going to find out in a few chapters, he's going to become one of David's counselors. And Uriah the Hittite, you're probably familiar, yeah, he's also one of the 30. He's another one of David's mighty men. And so Bathsheba's not just a nobody from nowhere. She is the daughter of one of David's most trusted soldiers. She is the granddaughter of one of David's trusted advisors. And she is the wife of another one of David's most trusted soldiers. But here's the thing. David doesn't care about any of that. At least not at this point. To David, in this moment, there's only two things about her that matter. Number one, her husband Uriah is off to war. He is fighting the Ammonites at Rabbah like the rest of the army. And number two, look at what it says about her at the end of verse two, she was very beautiful. Literally it says, she was very good to look upon. So given those two things, verse 4, he took her. But you see what just happened? David saw something, something that was good in his eyes, and then he takes it. And thus he falls into great sin. We've heard that story before, haven't we? Saw, good, took, That's language straight from Genesis chapter 3. And so David joins Adam and Eve in taking what God has forbidden. Back then, it was taking fruit. Here, it's taking Uriah's wife. Now at this point, as we see the development of this sin of adultery, we have to pause and just kind of rewind the tape a little bit. Because while this is the first time that David takes another man's wife, we should note that this is not the first time that he's taken for himself women outside of God's original design for marriage. Look back with me all the way back to 1 Samuel 25, 43. Uh, This is right after David marries Abigail. Look what it says. David also took... Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Hmm. Okay. So he's now taken for himself two wives. Well, then a couple of chapters later, after he becomes king, there's this in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, in taking all these wives to himself, even if it was culturally acceptable, 
we need to recognize that this was never God's will for his people. A marriage was always designed by God, intended by God, to be for one man and one woman. Like anything outside of that construct, in David's case, one man and many women, perhaps dozens of women. Well, it's sin. And in David's case in particular, remember, he is the king of Israel. It also puts him in violation of another command of God's law. Deuteronomy 17, laws specific to the king. Look what it says in verse 17. He shall not acquire for himself many wives, lest his heart turn away. And so in one sense, the sin of adultery in this chapter, it's not all that unlike what David's been doing his entire life. He's been taking women that he should not be taking to be his wives his entire life. It's just that this woman that he takes happens to already be someone else's wife. To use the language of Proverbs 6, he's been carrying fire next to his chest for some time now in terms of going against God's commandments for marriage. But it's only now that his clothing is going to get burned. But back to the narrative. Notice how fast-paced the action is here. There's nothing about how David was feeling or how Bathsheba was feeling or any of their dialogue or conversation or interactions or anything. It's just rapid fire, kind of matter of fact, action verbs in verses two to four. Sent, took, lay, came, returned. And up to that point, returned? Well, no big deal for King David. What happens in the king's palace stays in the king's palace, right? Nobody has to know anything. But then Bathsheba drops the atomic bomb. I am pregnant. It's the only line she gets in this play. But it's the line that changes the course of everything. Because now David's in trouble. Adultery. Adultery was a capital offense, according to God's law, for both the man and the woman. Sure, it's probably unlikely that a great king like David with his 99.9% approval rating is going to actually be put to death by any court in Israel. Highly unlikely. But adultery was still a big deal. Like at the very least, it would have brought shame, humiliation, a dishonor. It would have tarnished what was otherwise a pretty spotless public legacy for David. And so David goes into cover-up mode. This is where the chapter gets really, really interesting. He first sends for Uriah from the battlefield, and he asks Uriah, look at verse 7, how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Don't miss just how strange that is. So, Uriah, how's it going out there? Everything's good? How's my man Joab doing? Everything's okay with him? That makes no sense. Like, why would David send for Uriah? One of David's mighty men, a renowned soldier, certainly a man of rank in the army. Like, why would he send for him to ask him such meaningless questions? David's already got messengers who bring him news from the battlefield every day. Why would you pull Uriah off the battlefield for that? Well, the answer, of course, 
is that David doesn't care about the answers to those questions. David just wants Uriah to go home. And so David sends him back with a gift. But Uriah refuses. He instead sleeps at the door of the king's house with the other servants. Why? Well, his answer's in verse 11. Our nation's at war. Joab and the soldiers, they're all out from, out of home. Uh, my comrades are sleeping in tents in the fields of Ammon. Like, how am I going to just go home and sleep in my own bed? You see, David expects Uriah to be altogether like him, right? To be ruled by his passions. But Uriah, and notice how he's called Uriah the Hittite throughout, right? Drawing attention to his foreign roots. But this man is not just a Hittite. He's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Like he shows himself throughout the chapter to be a man of integrity and character and uprightness and commitment who prioritizes the Lord and his cause. We might even say that in this chapter, Uriah is the man after God's own heart. And so in his commitment to his fellow soldiers, in his commitment to the cause of God, Uriah declares, verse 11, as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Referring to being with Bathsheba. And we have to wonder, we have to wonder if that statement prodded David's conscience at all. Because if David had had the conviction and the courage and the resolve to say that exact same thing all the way back in verse 2, like, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, none of this would have been necessary. I will not do this thing. And so plan A is a miserable failure. But now David turns to plan B. And it gets worse and worse because in plan B, David basically tries to get Uriah drunk enough to abandon his discipline and his convictions. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Habakkuk 2.15. But David could care less about what Habakkuk would write centuries later. He just wants to cover his sin. But once again, the integrity and the uprightness of Uriah is the foil to David's plan. So once again, Uriah doesn't go down to his house. So plan A has failed. Plan B has failed. Now David turns to plan C. And again, it keeps getting worse and worse because plan C is to have Uriah intentionally killed in the battle. And did you notice the cruel twist of irony here? David sends the letter that contained the instructions for Uriah's murder to Joab by the hand of Uriah. He unwittingly is carrying his own death sentence, which means what? Which means that David trusted Uriah's character, knowing that he was not going to try to read this confidential letter, like leaving him holding up to the sun, trying to make out a couple of words. No, not Uriah. He is a man of integrity. That's the man that David is trying to murder here. And this time, this plan works perfectly. Joab and the Ammonites basically do David's dirty work for him. So Uriah is killed in the battle. And now Joab sends a messenger 
back to David with that news. And listen, if David gives you any heat about the number of casualties that we suffer today, just tell him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now put yourself in the messenger's shoes for just one second. That is really bizarre. Like, of course, David, as the king, he's going to be upset about the number of casualties that we suffered. But how is the fact that one of his most trusted soldiers, his most valiant soldiers, is also dead? How is that going to assuage his anger? Well, it's only if news of Uriah's death is all that David really cares about. Others die in the process? Well, that's collateral damage. That's just a necessary sacrifice to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. Boy, that's a far cry from the David that we have come to know and love. The David who, in his earlier years, refused to put out his hand against King Saul because of his integrity and his convictions, because he always wanted to do what was right over what was expedient. Seems like an entirely different person than the one that we're dealing with here. And look at David's response to the messenger. I do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Basically, them's the breaks. Or as Ali Whited would say, c'est la vie. I took seven years of French, and that's all I know. <laughs> to the uninformed messenger, this guy's in the dark. Maybe that sounds like wisdom. Maybe that sounds like, like courageous leadership in time of trial. But for us readers who know the backstory, well, we see it rightly as cold-hearted satisfaction in that he got exactly what he wanted. Uriah is dead. And so David takes Bathsheba and marries her. I want you to notice how verse 26 is phrased. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Like a much easier, simpler way to phrase that would have been when Bathsheba heard that Uriah was dead. Why all these extra words? It's as if the author is saying to us, Bathsheba is not just any woman that David took. She is the wife of Uriah. As a matter of fact, the entire chapter, the narrator never once calls her by her name. He instead calls her the woman or the wife of Uriah. But, 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 it's okay. Everything's okay, David, because nobody else knows. And not only are you going to be in the clear with regards to your sin, you're also going to become a hero for marrying Bathsheba. Because in the eyes of the public, well, here is King David graciously taking in one of the widows of his fallen soldiers. Like, wow! Look at how David is once again extending chesed. This time for the sake of one of his mighty men caring for his widow like that. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for widows. Like, wow, David, you are a great man. What a king. 
I said, would you look at that? Chapter 11 comes to a close. It looks like David's gotten away with everything. His cover-up, his schemes, his plots. Like they actually worked. And as a bonus, like in the process, he has strengthened his reputation as a king who shows loving kindness, righteousness, justice, who always does what is right. All's well, that ends well. Right? In, second, in 1 Corinthians, rather, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes through some Old Testament stories of, of just great sin that the Israelites commit. And while David's sin with Bathsheba isn't included there, I think the same exact principle applies. Uh, look at what Paul says in verses 11 and 12 of that chapter that these things happened as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. They were written down for our instruction. Why would the lowest moment of the greatest king of the Old Testament even be recorded? Like, why wasn't this just swept under the rug? Why wasn't this just airbrushed away? Well, it's at least in part as an example for us. It's at least in part for our instruction that we might learn about sin and take heed lest we fall. And so, just as our takeaways from this narrative... Let me leave you with four warnings about sin. Four warnings about sin from this narrative. Four ways in which we ought to be instructed that we might take heed lest we fall. Warning number one is that sin can snowball quickly. Sin can snowball quickly. Part of what makes this narrative so fascinating and so tragic is just watching how quickly sin progresses. Like it all starts with David seeing Bathsheba. And that continues, right? That glance becomes a stare and the stare becomes an an inquiry. And then as James tells us, desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And so he takes her. But it doesn't stop there because sin snowballs quickly. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger because now that adultery has to be covered. And that leads to all kinds of lying and deception. And when that doesn't work, well, it finally leads to the murder of a faithful man. If you had gone up to David at the beginning of chapter 11 and you had said to him, hey, do you want me to kill Uriah the Hittite for you? I'll do it for free. Do you want me to kill Uriah the Hittite? What do you think David would have said? He would have been outraged. One of my mighty men, a noble and honorable man like Uriah, how dare you even think that? He might even put you to death. 
There's absolutely no way that David could have envisioned murdering Uriah at the beginning of the chapter. But that's what happens with sin. Sin can lead to more sin, which can lead to more sin, which can lead to more sin. And all of a sudden, this lustful glance at a woman snowballs into cold-blooded murder. So given how many steps there are in this chapter of just kind of descending into more and more sin, maybe one of the most tragic parts of the narrative is how many opportunities David had to stop this. When he saw Bathsheba and maybe initially had a lustful thought, he could have ran back into his house. When he inquired about Bathsheba and he finds out that she is a married woman, he could have said, never mind. Thought it through. It's, it's not right. Even after the adultery, even after the adultery, he could have heeded his conscience. You know what? I need to come clean on this. Or after the first two times that his plans were frustrated by Uriah's integrity, we could have realized his folly and repented. And even after Uriah was murdered, he could have confessed his sin. But no, at every step, as his sin snowballs into greater and greater sin, David continues to harden his heart and refuses to repent. And as a result... By the end of the chapter, by verse 27, he ends up in a place that surely he could not have imagined at the beginning. Friends, perhaps this morning, as I'm describing this path of sin, this downward spiral of sin, how sin can so easily lead to more sin, Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're seeing it play out in your life like right now. Like you've been in unrepentant sin and you just find your sin progressing deeper and deeper and deeper. We're a little bit of just hanging out with some ungodly people here and there. Now that's plunging you into all kinds of worldliness and ungodliness. Or just a little bit of compromise in terms of what you look at on the computer is quickly becoming a full-fledged addiction to pornography. Or a little flirting here and there with your coworker at the office. It's putting you on the fast track to all-out adultery. Really hope that I'm not describing anybody in this room. But if I am, or if there's something similar, May this text serve you as a stern warning. A warning that sin can snowball so quickly. David perhaps was blinded by his sin, so blinded that he just couldn't see that truth. And so he just follows his sin into its tragic conclusion. But you, whatever you've already done, like however far you already are in your sin, Like, if the Lord has opened your eyes to this truth, you can still flee now. The next step of more and greater sin is never inevitable or necessary. 
You can always repent. You can always flee. So if this describes your life right now, I plead with you, I beg you to flee now before it gets worse. Warning number one, sin can snowball so quickly. Warning number two, sin is no respecter of persons. Sin is no respecter of persons. Like as we're reading about this great sin in this chapter, right, the adultery and the deception and the murder and the lying and the disregard for a soldier's lives and the cold-hearted hypocrisy, we need to remember that all of this is being perpetrated by David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the greatest king of Israel's history. The one to whom every other king after him is going to be compared. David, the king in covenant with God. One of the most revered saints of the Old Testament. The sweet psalmist of Israel who wrote half the psalms that we have. Just listen. Listen to some of the things that this man wrote. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you think that a man who was that close to God that he could write those things, that even he was capable of these things? That even he could fall to temptation and sin like this? Friends, that should be a humbling humbling and sobering thought for each and every single person in this room. Like it does not matter who you are. It does not matter how you serve the Lord. It does not matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't matter how closely you might be walking with the Lord right now. Sin is no respecter of persons. And so any of us, any of us, apart from God's restraining grace, any of us could find ourselves committing sin that we might presently consider to be unfathomable. But that shouldn't create in us a sense of despondency or resignation. Rather, it should cause us to cry out for grace all the more. Lord, please, please don't leave me to myself. Please guard my heart. Guard my steps. Oh, great God, help me now to live a life that is dependent on your grace. Our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Warning number two, sin is no respecter of persons. Warning number three, 
sin often leaves a trail of destruction. You remember how in 2 Samuel chapter 7 through 10, especially draw our attention to this. You remember how everything was just going so swimmingly for David. His kingship, his throne was secure, his enemies were gone. His kingdom, borders secure, reigning with justice. His legacy, like everything he touched turned to gold, everybody loved him. But all of that All of that is about to come crashing down because sin often leaves a trail of destruction. And so even as it appears, like David's in the clear, that his sin's not going to have any repercussions after all, well, we need to remember that we're just getting started here. The next few chapters of 2 Samuel are all about how David's life is going to completely unravel. Like everything that he's built up over the past few decades in terms of his kingship, in terms of his kingdom, in terms of his legacy, like all of that is about to be destroyed. He's going to lose his kingship to a rebellion that starts within his own family. His kingdom is about to undergo a civil war. And his legacy is forever going to be tarnished in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And so again, brothers and sisters, let me appeal to those of you in this room who currently find yourself in hidden, unrepentant sin. Maybe, maybe it's the sin of adultery. Maybe it's something else entirely. Whatever it is, you're, you're, you're cherishing some sin. You're, you're clinging on to something. You're, you're hiding something, thinking that you're going to get away with it, thinking that everything's going to be okay. But you are unwittingly heading down this path of sure destruction. I pray that you would see this text, this passage, this sermon, as God graciously calling you to repent, that you might be spared the destruction that you are setting yourself up for. Oh, we can only imagine how David, in just a few short chapters, having seen the destruction that his sin caused, how David would have given up the world and everything in it to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Warning number three, sin often leaves a trail of destruction. Finally, warning number four. Sin displeases the Lord. Here's the thing about 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a crazy chapter. There's some really twisted and and wicked plans on David's part here. But at the end of the day, it kind of all works out for him. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is now his wife. So David's sin is hidden. No one's going to suspect a thing. And not only is no one going to suspect a thing, but David actually now is going to be celebrated as the gracious king of loving kindness. And so 26 and a half verses later, everybody lived happily ever after the end, but not quite. Because there's that last half of that last verse of the chapter 
that we've kind of skipped over thus far, but it's by far and away the most important, impactful, significant sentence in the entire chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. One thing you'll notice as you scan your eyes back through the chapter is that God has been curiously absent in everything. And for David, that's exactly what you want. But as Ralph Davis writes, the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. Or to put it another way, we ought never to assume that just because God allows sin to happen, that he doesn't care. Oh yes, he cares. Oh, we know he cares. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let me point out two important things about that phrase. First, the English word displeased, I don't think that's strong enough here. Displeased is like how we feel when something minor goes wrong. No, displeased isn't nearly strong enough. The Hebrew literally says the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But second, suppose we do stay with the ESV and we use the word displease. Well, you remember where we saw that word earlier? Just two verses ago? David speaking to Joab through a messenger about what happened in the matter of Uriah. What does he say? He says, do not let this matter displease you. Or more literally, again, do not let this matter be evil in your sight. And so you see that David is rationalizing here, both to Joab and to himself, to his own conscience, don't let this be evil in our sight. Meanwhile, God's seeing all of this unfold before his omniscient eyes, and regardless of what David is saying, and David is rationalizing here, don't let this be evil in your sight. Well, it is evil in God's sight. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is what ultimately matters here. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. All of the other warnings that we've already talked about, like all of them are true. A sin can snowball very quickly. And sin is no respecter of persons. And sin often leaves a trail of destruction. But none of those things in and of themselves matter in the least in comparison to this last warning. That our sin displeases the Lord. Because if God doesn't care about sin, well, we really don't have to care about sin either. We should probably just do whatever we want. But God does care about sin. It displeases him. It's evil in his sight. He hates it. And that, more than the fact that it can snowball quickly, more than the fact that it can happen to any of us, more than the fact that it leaves a trail of destruction, that is what makes sin so terrible. Because while the first three warnings deal primarily with earthly consequences, like consequences in this life, well, this last warning, it stretches all the way into eternity. The fact that sin, all sin, is evil in God's sight. 
That means that all of us, as those who have sinned, and perhaps our sin is not the sin of adultery and murder like David, but it is still sin against the holy God. That means that all of us deserve eternal judgment and wrath in hell. That's worse than any earthly consequence. Like an eternity in hell makes any earthly consequence seem like a slap on the wrist. But friends, it's when we recognize that truth, that our sin displeases the Lord, that our sin is evil in his sight, that's when we truly begin to understand the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus. The preciousness of what God has done for us in Christ. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is God taking that sin that he hates so much, that sin that we have committed against him, and he puts it on his beloved son instead. God punishes that sin in his son so that we who are guilty would never know the judgment that we deserve. God pours out his wrath on Jesus so that sinners like you, sinners like me, sinners like David can be forgiven. We're going to talk much more about that in the chapters to come. The grace and the forgiveness that David finds. The grace and the forgiveness that you and I can find in the gospel of Jesus. But I remind you of it today that we might, like even in this sermon, even in this passage that dealt so heavily with sin and its tragic consequences, that we might still cling on to this precious truth. Right? That the God in whose eyes sin is so evil sent his son to atone for that very sin for his people. That's the gospel. And that's what we need to take away from 2 Samuel 11. Father, we thank you that you have left us stories like this that they might serve us as an example and as a warning. Father, we pray that we, by the power of your spirit, would heed your warnings, that we would never deal with sin lightly, but that we would see it for what it is. And Father, most of all, we pray that we would go to the only refuge that you have provided for our sin, that Jesus, your Son, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.